Welcome, caller. You're on the line with the calls are coming from inside the podcast, an exploration of the human side of horror. Each week, we call a unique guest and ask them about one horror movie that left its mark on them. Together, we do a deep dive into our guest's personal connection to find out what horror feels like. I'm Kevin Sparrow, and this week, we're getting all kinds of goopy with our body horror coverage. We'll find out if this is the most queer of all the horror subgenres as we dig our nails and our nail files under the skin of Tetsuo, the Iron Man, Shinya Tsukamoto's 1989 cyberpunk masterpiece. We're also trying something a little different this week and releasing our double feature recommendation, David Cronenberg's Crash, as a separate episode later this week. Keep your eyes quite literally peeled for that, and remember, your future is metal. What happens in this movie? Um, loosely, it doesn't have to be a plot, minute by minute plot deconstruction. Yeah. I'm sure we'll go all over. What plot? Who knows? <laughs> that structuring it is the most exciting part of my day. Oh, yeah. Well, here we are once again with a new month uh, of content, a new theme. I'm really excited for this one. So today's guest, we have one half of the Descent podcast, which I really love their coverage of spotlighting underground, extreme, international horror. I found like a lot of really great, just unknown to me before movies, listening to The Descent. They are also an assistant editor for Beauty of Horror at spreadthebeauty.org and a columnist for Dread Central with the focus of new queer extremity. This is really... uh, what this month is all about, I think, in some ways. So please give a queer cheer for John Patterson. I'm really happy to be here today. I've listened to the podcast for a while, and I'm really glad you invited me to do this. Yeah, I'm excited, uh, especially for kicking off kind of our Pride Month coverage. And I think just looking at it from this different direction, right? Because as a writer, and just like all the movies that I see you recommend or that I mm-hmm. follow that the it's just a different lens on kind of queer extremity being an inextricable part of what we look at when we're looking at queer horror. Yeah. And it's hard to talk about with most people because maybe not a lot of people want to get into this type of film, extreme films, body horror, that kind of thing. That's, you know, not everyone's cup of tea. It is mine. So I always have to balance like (laughs) what's right for me as a person and what's right to plug into other people's ear holes. Yeah. Which that's a whole, that could be a whole body horror itself. But can you tell me a little bit about what you've been working on recently? Are there things coming up in the month of June that we should keep an eye on, either in your writing or things with The Descent? We have uh, one more guest episode coming up from The Descent. I think we are going to go on a slight break for a month or two. And... Yeah, I have an article coming out on uh, Gailey Dreadful for Gailey Helpful this mm-hmm. month. This will be my second year contributing to that. I think it's an important thing to always do whenever possible, you know, whenever the time is permitting. And it'll be another month, so another Nuclear Extremity will come out on the second Tuesday of this month. And that's about halfway written now. So I've got to finish watching some stuff for that. But it uh, should be an interesting one, I think. Yes. Awesome. So yeah, we're coming up. So that article should already be out by the time this episode drops into the feed. So check out John's article when it comes <laughs> to your <laughs> to your face hole, to your inbox. I guess if it's already going to be out by the time, I can just go ahead and say it's going to be on uh, bisexual gays and exploitation films from the 70s. Oh. And that's what I'll be writing about this month for that, you know, kind of pre-extreme horror as you would call it nowadays. But still fits into the lineage of that style of film right exploitation yeah we need to get a deeper dive into that it's been it's been often kind of like a a nowhere land as well but i guess drawing those themes together this will be a really great kickoff point because i think this is queer in a lot of different senses right of not just 
speaking about queerness as like a gender or sexual identity minority, but kind of also looking at like abjection or like the queering of the body, the queering of, you know, personhood. I think horror is a great way to express that. So I kind of wanted to just get kind of a general mood, (laughs) feeling, thoughts, just about what does queerness and horror mean to you? Why do you think that queer viewers connect with horror so much or so directly? I think something that uh, the horror genre really has going for it is that it dives into a lot of the more, I guess you could say, like primal emotions and feelings. And it tries to deal with things that are, you know, like fundamental to being human. You know, there's fear, there's terror, there's worry about getting hurt, there's sexuality, there's all these things that you could call on with it. And also something else they do, and we'll discuss this later for because this film has a lot of body horror, is mm-hmm. they take a lot of internal struggle and make it external. And, it, you know, it presents it explicitly as a literal case instead of a figurative case of something going on in someone's head. Because you can take a movie, any kind of movie, even one that's not, you know, explicitly queer coded at first glance, and you could look at it and you could apply that, you know, idea to it, essentially. And you get some of the older films and the exploitation and horror canons that have been, you know, adopted as queer films because that interpretation works so well with them. They just kind of get to the core of, you know, what we are as people. And if you get down to the core of people, you're going to get into that, you know, that base level stuff, which, you know, in some ways, a lot of people are, you know, concerned by queerness, I guess. And that's another thing that happens is you see movies that can be considered offensive that are eventually adopted and changed over into being something that's like considered a positive, like you can see with Sleepaway Camp and stuff like that. Oh, sure. <laughs> so I think it's inexorably linked in my head, I guess. And that has to do with, you know, my personal history with the genre and how mm-hmm. I got into them and, you know, my past and stuff like that. But to me, it's always been. Horror is about the fundamental parts of human nature. Sexuality is a a fundamental part of human nature. So you bring that in and you can look at everything. The things that we don't generally talk about out loud are made out loud in an externalized way. Yeah. If that last sentence made any sense. Yes, it does. It is a lot of what I think about. I'm always really interested in the body uh, in different ways. And obviously the horror genre as a whole pushes the body (laughs) most of the time either about like our relationship to it our relationship to what happens to the body after we die if we're talking about like a ghost story something like that and for whatever reason i really am drawn to that very particular body horror subgenre we got crimes of the future coming out so i'm all in the Cronenberg mood. And actually, I talked it. with Mikey P. Jr., your co-host on The Descent. We talked about The Fly um, when he was yeah, on in November. Fun. So I don't know. There's something revolving around you guys and and body horror, I guess. But this is kind of a sub-theme I had on this question. Do you feel like body horror is the most queer subgenre in horror? Because I get that feeling. <laughs> Definitely an argument could be made because like, you can take someone's internal struggle and show it through their body through anything that's happening to them in a physical thing which is easier to visualize you can make you know visual thematic moments and stuff like that where you don't have to explicitly say something about what you're talking about and that's nice and i think a lot of the more physical we'll call them physical genres of horror are the ones that seem to have a lot of queer interpretations applied to them Mm -hmm. and so you know like slashers uh body horror extreme horror stuff like that So I think it just, it works really well for it. And it's hard to kind of separate the two. Yeah. I feel so, I, as much as it feels like a weird thing, and I felt this way watching Tetsuo this time around of like, there's some kind of comfort in it, even though it's very, uh, there's a lot of off-putting visuals in body horror. Uh, As a queer person specifically, I do find a lot of comfort in body horror and in, I don't know, protagonists connecting with with something within themselves or connecting with this externalized part of themselves. Yeah. So I don't know. For me, I would say yes to that answer. I guess it's not the easiest one 
to touch all all people in the LGBTQIA spectrum, but it's out there. The standpoint for calls inside podcast is body <laughs> horror all the way. It's always gay. Um, let's get into this movie a little bit more. I want to talk about your history with Tetsuo, the Iron Man. And where did you first see it? What drew you to it? Did you have a history with kind of, this is also a little bit of a sub-subgenre within Japanese cinema uh, of kind of the cyberpunk era of the late 80s and early 90s that Tetsuo kind of helps highlight, kick off. So how did you get into this movie? I found this movie, I am not entirely positive of the year, but I, from where I watched it from and when I watched it, I would say I was 14 or 15 when I first watched this movie. So, oh, how old am I now? So like 18 years ago. And I found this movie at my, I live out, I grew up in the middle of nowhere, basically. Very rural area, not a lot going on. This is pre a lot of internet and all that. You know, we had a 56K modem, but there wasn't a whole bunch of sites where you could, you know, compile lists of movies and things like that. Right. And honestly, what drew me to it is the cover art. I think a couple of weeks before was the first time I ever watched Eraserhead on VHS. Mm. And it gave off that similar kind of vibe, that uh, really dirty, grainy, monochrome black and white with that sort of like art house layer over it, like you get from Eraserhead. Also at the time, you know, I would have been into anime and manga and stuff like that. And it was put, uh, the VHS, if I'm not mistaken, was put out by a company that predominantly put out anime films on VHS, like dubs and subs, way back in the day. And that's how I found it. And I just went home, I watched it, because I didn't have too much oversight on what I watched. At a certain point, like after 12, they're like, oh, you, you know this is all fake, you're fine, watch whatever. I'm like, okay, cool. And so that leads to me, you know, 14, 15 years old, sitting in front of my TV watching Tetsuo the Iron Man on a grainy-ass VHS tape. It just stuck with me ever since then, and I've, whenever there's a release of it, I buy a new copy. I've, mm-hmm. It's one of my top five favorite movies since then. And I wouldn't have known about the other Japanese cyberpunk films without this one. Like, mm-hmm. There were more at the time of this film's release, and at the time I could have gotten them, but Tetsuo was you know, considered the big one. Like mm-hmm. the progenitor of all this. And then you have stuff like Pinocchio 951, Rubber's Lover, all these other body horror films from the late 80s, early 90s. And Shinya Tsukamoto kind of kicked all that off with this. Right. And it just introduced me to a lot of horror, more so than anything. I don't think I watched a whole lot of horror in general before I watched this, because at the time I would say I would have been into like art films and like the old classics and stuff like that. But this movie just kind of like blew my mind. I'm like, I need to find more like that. And somehow that ended up watching every horror movie I can get my hands on. Yeah. And a lot of ways, I mean, I would say this is an art film. Maybe there's, depending on, I guess, where you draw a line in low and high culture and what this movie is attempting to do. But there's a lot of really interesting, just cinematic arts I don't know, invention, inventiveness happening with how the film is used, the way that things are edited. So we'll talk a little bit about the style. But yeah, I agree. I don't know why I thought I had seen this movie back in the day when I was kind of really getting into into this Mm -hmm. whole subgenre. But definitely, I think I was just confusing it with Rubber's Lover, just because there's kind of like a similar, you know, black and white thing going on. Similar aesthetic between the two. But uh, my personal favorite, Pinocchio, 946. Uh, he's 946, I said 951. Yeah. <laughs> Messed it up already. No, it's okay. We'll go uh, back. Just <laughs> 946. We'll Plot fix it, it in post. <laughs> yeah. Yep. But, no, it's fine. I, I can't know everything all the time. <laughs> but I don't know. For whatever reason, in my early 20s was the perfect time to just get into bizarre, extreme Japanese cinema. So you see kind of that legacy, though. I feel like that kind of DIY aesthetic, right? Shinya Tsukamoto mm-hmm. kind of did everything on this film. Uh, writing, directing, yeah. conceiving, <laughs> shooting it, acting in it with his team of folks from his theater company, 
So yeah. similar to I, Stuart I, Gordon and the the theater company he founded that went on to do all their horror films in the eighties, <laughs> uh, Shinya Sukamoto and his family of players kind of all got together to make yeah. Tetsuo. And if you watch this movie, you can see his one previous film playing on one of the TVs near the beginning. The Adventure of Denshu Kozo play, is playing on one of the TVs. And if you watch it, it is visibly a precursor in style to this. It has a lot of that like really quick staccato stop motion shots to make things like they're moving fast and all that. And I'm just I'm always just tickled to think that this came from essentially a group of theater kids, basically. Mm-hmm. Who just decided to make movies? I, I always find that fact fascinating about it. That if that's this is the transition from theater to film. Oh, it's clearly a theater kids movie. Just look at the look at these <laughs> folks. It's very it's wonderful. I like seeing that that style. There, I mean, there is a lot of stylization. I was kind of looking at it. There's a lot of to me a Buteau feel to some of the movement, and Buteau is. For those who don't know, it's kind of a Japanese dance theater form that came about in the mid-20th century. Um, it's kind of an avant-garde form, and it emphasizes slower motion facial expression. Sometimes there's kind of a painting of the skin white, but there's a lot of buto work that crosses into maybe a horror genre uh, or that feeling just because of how the aesthetics are set up. So... Just really mm-hmm. interesting to me to like think of that and watch this this movie. If you want examples of Buto, I mean, you can look them up. I would also, you know, recommend the Kiyoshi Kurosawa's film Pulse. If you know the scariest moment of that oh. scene, that is a Buto moment. Oh. <laughs> there you go. That, mm, I'm gonna be thinking about that all night. Now. <laughs> thinking of Pulse all night. Yes, I love it. Yep. But similar to this movie, this is something I also really love about Japanese cinema is often that it's not super didactic with themes or messages. It's just kind of a lived experience. So going backwards from Pulse, which is about a lot of anxieties around technology, digital living and existing kind of among all that, this movie is very much about a very post-industrial society and anxieties around industry around metal around living with all this excess stuff that we live with yeah it's really cool in that way too but there's not necessarily a strict message that this movie is following or delivering it just kind of unfolds in a lived-in way which is what i love yeah oh i just wanted to touch on one other kind of behind the scenes thing that makes it i don't know for some whatever reason it queers it a bit more for me especially when we think of things like the male gaze and film and whose gaze it is being filtered through. So yes, Mm -hmm. Shinya Tsukamoto is the director, but he shared the cinematography duties with Kei Fujiwara, who plays the girlfriend. And so Mm -hmm. it's really interesting to have it lensed. We're viewing it literally through a split of male and female. Yeah. So they're kind of different interpretations, right? There's a splitting of mm-hmm. whose gaze is actually happening here. So I'm going to just claim it as a non-binary gaze. There you go. <laughs> this movie, if you want a perfect movie for what the non-binary gaze is, Tetsuo as well. Now that we've kind of got the background in it, let's, let's walk through. Let's see what queerness we can pull out. Uh, you can always... Look up John's article, Queer Desire in the Cyberpunk Closet, about this film on Dread Central 2. So if there's any points we don't touch on, we'll have it covered (laughs) in one way or another. (laughs) So where do we start with this? I guess I wanted to ask about just kind of the opening of the film with the metal fetishist, as he's called. No one has names, Mm -hmm. I guess, in a technical sense. It's all very fairy tale-like, I suppose fairy tales gone wrong <laughs> they're basically all the characters are described by what they you know actually are there's this there's the metal fetishist the woman and the salaryman mm-hmm. salaryman and that's what you get in this movie and, woman and the opening that you're talking about yep oh yeah how could we forget and that's a really fascinating thing to actually break down we'll get we'll get there we will get there mm-hmm. the film opens with the metal fetishist uh cutting his leg open inserting a metal rod 
realizing he's covered in maggots, running out to the street and getting hit by a car. Now, that description by itself, you get the physicality of what's happening. The weird things about this scene is the tone and the way uh, the metal fetishist movements and what he's focusing on. Like before he inserts the rod, right before he does it after he's got his leg open, he's looking at these photos of this uh, half-naked track star, basically. Mm-hmm. And then while he's admiring that, he shoves this into his leg, and that could be seen as a way of you know literal penetration of himself while looking at these other things. But uh, he doesn't get what he wants out of it because instead of it forming him into what would be a metal person, he his body like revolts against it Mm -hmm. the maggots come and then he runs and whenever i show this movie to people one of the first things that puts them off is right before he gets hit by the car and that jazz music hits and the camera like woozily moves romantically around the front of the car right before it hits him and that sequence is the very beginning and then you get into the next part and how did you feel about that uh opening segment i mean why wouldn't the camera lovingly look at the car's grill this is from the metal fetishist's point of view what do you think he was gonna do with it (laughs) like of course he loves it but yeah i love i like the opening a lot one thing it's all intertwined right so the pictures of the the runners the competitive track stars Mm -hmm. is they're all cut out and then placed among this kind of wiring these metal pieces all sticking out so there's already like that fetish already exists. It just hasn't been lived in yet. Mm-hmm. I love it. I mean, I was also thinking of Crash a lot, which is important. Yeah. We'll get into Crash. Uh, in the, <laughs> spoiler alert, in the later half of this episode. But I just like it because I think, you know, we get to see two very different versions of, of laying pipe in a leg wound uh, between this movie and that one. So... <laughs> oh. We'll get into that. I think it's great. I think it's a perfect kind of short movie. Like it's a sequence on its own. That could be its own short film. Yeah. Uh, That's one thing I appreciate about this movie, that there's not a lot of clear plot orientation, but there are clear sequences that you kind of follow along. And I think this is just a great way to get us into the world. Yeah, definitely. And I was also interested in this part. Maybe we'll talk about it here because I think it goes through the rest of the movie. So this is going to unpack a lot of things, I think. So if it spirals out for us a bit too much, let me know. But him getting hit by the car is also, we'll put a spoiler alert because we discover that's how how Salary Man gets pulled into all of this. He's kind of infected by this, this hit and run that he goes with. And so because this is an 80s film, I was thinking a lot about the AIDS epidemic. Does that play a role in this transmissibility? Although in the 1980s Japan, it was less of a concern, I guess, to a degree. Like it wasn't as epidemic as it was in other countries. But there is this interesting point that there was an HIV blood scandal in kind of like the early to mid 80s where most of the people or a number of people who were being diagnosed with HIV and AIDS were hemophiliacs because of a tainted blood supply like the blood wasn't being properly treated before people were getting blood transfusions so that was interesting Mm -hmm. to me of that there doesn't necessarily have to be like a sexual component a sexually transmitted component Mm -hmm. that we'll get into i feel like that does happen later on in this movie (laughs) but at least in this kind of initial thing that there's a transmission in this other way of just being receptive right yeah being receptive to this outside force influencing you more about receptivity and submissiveness later i guess And you could also say it's almost like a uh, transfer of ideas from the metal fetishist to the salary man, because this is also another spoiler, but this whole thing's going to be chock full of them. Later on, you find out that the salary man and the woman had sex while staring at the metal fetishist's dying body, essentially. Mm -hmm. And while they're doing this, the salary man can't do anything but stare at the metal fetishist for the entire time. He does gives her zero regard. And that's 
the last thing that like if you try to place the film sequentially that's the last thing that happens before he wakes up with we'll call it the metal zit mm-hmm. so it definitely like the car hitting his body forms a connection between these two that is going to be the basis for the rest of the entire film I like the idea you mentioned about it possibly being an HIV or AIDS analog as well. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a part where that is like almost explicitly said towards the end of the film. And I'll mention that when we get there. But yeah, um, one of the beauties about this film is you can, in, because you said that it's not didactic and it's not specifically saying, this is what this film is about, now watch it. Right. You can kind of apply your own thinking to it. You have to meet the movie halfway basically because it's not going to tell you everything about itself you right. have to bring part of yourself to it to find what the movie means either like as a whole or to you basically right and, and that's not to say it's too heady i think if you want to just watch it as no. a vibe or an aesthetic you can't you can do that too the soundtrack is a vibe yes industrial music i love that oh i didn't even really get into that style but yeah i mean Things you should know going in, right? 16 millimeter film, it's black and white, right? We have this kind of cinema verite style of of mixing handheld and static shots. There's stop motion animation. There's a lot of hyperkinetic editing, like even people's movement is sometimes stop motion through. It's really cool looking. And then, yes, that industrial music soundtrack. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful. And it plays throughout almost the entire film. And every time something's happening on screen, you know it's about to kick up. Yeah. And the person who composed that is a man named Chu Ishikawa. It's one of those things where the soundtrack is perfect for the film. Mm-hmm. Maybe you don't want to like sit there and listen to it outside of it, but it brings everything together. It brings the audio palette in with everything else. And the sound in this movie, outside of the music too, is crazy good. Like... Uh, once again, we'll get to that. We'll point out some of those examples. But yeah, I do just appreciate what's going on with it. I feel like it almost feels like it could be a silent film. There's very little dialogue. And so I yeah. like that it's kind of feels that way, right? Like you could have an industrial band playing live with this film playing silently and have that that experience. Yeah. <laughs> a more modern day great, silent actually. film version. <laughs> yes, right? Like, why hasn't that happened? Make it happen. Yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. Throbbing gristle meets <laughs> Tetsuo. That would be fun. But I did want to get into this next kind of sequence of the movie. This is after the salaryman's discovered his zit, kind of popped it, and then put a band-aid over it and forgets it. Mm-hmm. He's traveling by train, and he runs into this woman with glasses, as she is known. At one of the subway stations, what is this sequence? Because <laughs> it's a starting point for a lot of things <laughs> that happen. Yep. Later, it kicks off a thing, and I, I guess I wanted to get your thoughts on it first, and then maybe we can unpack it together. <laughs> okay. So this sequence, yeah, they're sitting on a bench at the train station, and she sees this thing. Well, it almost looks like a metal tumor, basically, mm-hmm. on the ground. Goes to Pogo with a pen, and immediately all this stuff grows out of her hand and stuff like that, and she begins to chase the salaryman. And you could tell from the way it's shot that the thing on the ground is technically part of the metal fetishist, I suppose you could say, because he's technically inside of it. And the, the film will keep cutting to this, where it will be the salaryman's actor, Shinya Tsukamoto, inside of a machine, basically, controlling whatever's happening. Mm-hmm. And in this sequence, he takes over her because he wants to, you know, find the salary man, essentially. And the salary man at this point has not come to terms with what's happening to him or is even aware of it. Mm-hmm. And he only starts to become aware of it later in the sequence when they get back to the garage and the woman is now beginning to actually look like the salary, uh, not the salary man, the metal fetishes, mm-hmm. like the face starts to change. He reaches up inside the woman's body and uh, pops her uh, breast instead to make it look more like himself, which is just a crazy effect in the way they do it. Yeah. But this sequence, when he is faced by this 
the metal fetishist here after this woman has become the metal fetishist. And before this, it's a woman's body, but um, with a masculine voice coming out of it because it's the metal fetishist essentially dubbed over this female actress's, Mm -hmm. you know, performance. And once she turns, the woman turns into the man and he, uh, you know, attacks him and the salary man ends up crushing him. Essentially, that's when he starts to transform. So you're right. It kicks off essentially the rest of the film. And it also draws a line, a line in desire for him from my interpretation again, a line of desire where he, there is this female character and we knew before that he had a girlfriend and all these other things, but then it switches on him very quickly. And, you know, you're going to start to see that playing with gender and sexuality a lot in the early to mid sections of this film. And I find Mm -hmm. that stuff absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I really enjoy that interplay. I mean, I think we're starting to also see something that was really interesting to me to think about, uh, you know, well, gender always is, I don't know, as a non-binary person, I feel like I'm like, yeah, who knows? What What is a gender? Um, yeah. So it can always be really fluid like that. So I do like seeing films that embrace a, a certain fluidity. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also interesting kind of how you put it and unpack it, right? Of it's not necessarily rejecting women either. There's that, eh, I don't know. I think there's always a weird narrative about <laughs> either being like yeah. a queer AMAB person means like you are mm-hmm. rejecting women. Like you have to reject women to become more queer. Or if you're an AFAB person, mm-hmm. the reverse, right? You have to reject men, quote unquote, to become more queer. And it's like, well, I don't, that's not what's happening here either. I don't think he's rejecting women, but there is a fear yeah. of this thing that's taking over, right? This internal yeah. iron thing that's happening, right? So I think it's mm-hmm. that gender play of like the metal fet- fetishist coming through the woman is interesting for one, but also he's afraid of her as a woman too, and as a woman who can yeah. penetrate him. So that's a really mm-hmm. interesting thing. Comes up later when he has a dream yes. about his girlfriend. So I think that's a good segue, but I just wanted to point it out of like, it's unpacking it in a way that when you put the queer reading or queer lens on it, I think also opens up really interesting avenues and kind of deepens an understanding hopefully of queerness or like that it isn't just this one trajectory and it doesn't have to mean a homonormative expression. (laughs) Yeah. And as, as a, as a bisexual man, like it, it makes sense in my head, these sort of things, these sorts of like push and pull between these different things. And a lot of desire is similar between the two. And I've talked to other people who are like, they were really distressed when they realize, oh, wait, I am also attracted to not just the opposite sex. Mm-hmm. And they're like, I don't know what to do about that. I was like, well, you're, you're bi, like me. And, you know, that's just how it is. So having that here and have him be, like, drawn to and repulsed by the, he's, these thoughts and these confrontations is really interesting in that way as well. I, I went through all this before, like I said, the internet existed and all that. So yeah. there's probably better support networks for people who live in the middle of nowhere like I did. But when I was, you know, realizing that I was bisexual, it was essentially by myself with no one around me. I didn't even know what it was, all that. So that's how it ties in there. Right. And I think that there's also the interesting thing. I like how this sequence of fear that I guess is a real thing. <laughs> segues into a dream sequence or kind of becomes that dream sequence right after so that we see that it isn't just fear anxiety it's not repulsion there's like i mean repulsive elements about it because when your body changes that can be gross Mm -hmm. um but there's also a lot of desire right so having it become a dream of his is really a freudian unconscious desire being lived out so tell me about the dream sequence what's happening with salary man the and dream big g girlfriend the salary man is for the entirety of this dream sequence on his arms and knee on his elbows and knees on the ground completely nude and his girlfriend is behind him and she has a very large metal phallus that is essentially dancing and she's dancing as well and you mentioned dance earlier mm-hmm. 
And there is a lot of aspects like that. Like just to push it back for a second, during the title sequence, that's just like a weird dance sequence mm -hmm. with it, that the title goes over. Anyway, but yeah, you immediately have it go from this like section where he is afraid and all these other things to him essentially having what you could call like a wet dream about his uh his girlfriend being able to penetrate him i suppose you could say mm -hmm. and yeah you could see hesitance there and stuff like that but a new sexual experience would obviously come with that like you don't just walk in and you're like i know everything about this i'm the master no it doesn't it's not like that that's the way i interpret that scene um some people see it more as uh like a i don't know like an assault i guess but i I've never really got that vibe from that scene. Yeah. Personally. Yeah, it's hard with representation where everything is, especially when it's abstracted like it is in this movie. But I wouldn't yeah. say the movie goes out of its way to make it clear that it's a dream sequence, but it is separated out in what comes after we know that it is. So yeah, for me, I, I, yeah, I didn't really read it as assault either. I read it as yeah. I'm scared of this thing happening to me, but I'm even more scared that I might like it. Right. Or I'm scared of like what that means. Yeah. It's more about anxiety about identity rather than of that action. Really fun, weird stuff. <laughs> this movie really goes out of its way. Yeah. To, to do this sort of stuff. And it, it makes it interesting each time you watch it. Or not, I guess maybe it didn't really go out of its way. If, Sukamoto was just like, yeah, that's this is right. This is how people are. <laughs> so we do get that coming into the real world, though, right after that, right? Because salary man wakes up with his girlfriend. They start to have sex. There's even more metal fetishizing happening here right away because, like, she's clinging to this metal mm -hmm. fan as they're doing it. Yeah, it's a very bizarre choice, but I guess if that's what you're in. Maybe she's into the, to the metal as well. It seems like. I, I think that whole sequence is, once again, like the sequence in the garage, it's trying to link the two, link girlfriend to metal fetishist, to, you mm -hmm. know, like trace the, that there's a source of desire that desires both of these people. And I think it really comes forward after they have sex. And he cooks like eggs and sausage and whatnot. Mm -hmm. I was like, what is he making that pan? Why is he, also, <laughs> why are you using metal tools to cut? up in that pan what is going on he it's... just like slams it on the table and knocks all the stuff out of the this way. is actually literally the yeah. grossest part of the movie to me <laughs> like it squicked me out the most just yeah. the sound of the metal and how she's uh biting on that fork like you you cannot bite yeah a fork like that i can't i couldn't stand it and and they add <laughs> all these like high-pitched squealing and industrial noises yeah. to it to once again draw that parallel that they're starting to really hammer home in the sequences. And I, it's like the last major part of that before it moves to what you could consider its next act. But yeah, that is a very off-putting sequence. And, you know, the sounds while she eats and the way she's eating it is just, she's being sexual to him, trying to get his attention. But when he's seeing her doing it, he's hearing the metal sounds, mm -hmm. which draws it back once again. Right, and that that interaction with the metal is what really is... I don't know, appealing to him in that moment. And I think it was the sexual frustration for kind of like the human flesh sex, I guess is how I would yeah. maybe describe it here. That kind of causes a very memorable member to appear in this movie, which is salary man's drill, drill penis. <laughs> we can't yeah. talk about this movie without talking about a drill penis. Uh, what are we going to do? But it is an interesting moment. I don't, I don't think anybody can. Yeah. How, how, yes. Every movie needs one. And I think this is an interesting moment because he's starting to transform, right? And he wants to hide it from his girlfriend. Yeah. So this is like, literally, he goes into a closet when this transformation is happening. <laughs> yeah. Every, you know, it took me a while to notice that. Like some of the smaller details go over my head. I don't know why, but I tend to hyper-focus on certain parts of a film. And so I, if I really want to dig into it, I have to watch it multiple times. But yes, he while he does his major transformations during this, he does go literally into a closet mm -mm. throughout. And then there's the reveal when his uh, drill penis comes up through the table, mm -hmm. basically. And this whole sequence is strange and that it has him 
his fear of what he's becoming, but then it's turned back again towards this weird, this desire towards girlfriend. And you get one of the most quoted lines in the movie. It's like, what is it? It's like, would you like a taste of my sewage pipe yes. or something like that? You want a taste of my sewage pipe? No, <laughs> no thanks. And throughout the sequence, he he's going through this thing where he's trying to have sex with her, but he's also trying to, like, he attempts to kill himself a couple times during this, you know, like stabbing stuff into outlets and all that. Mm-hmm. And he's like fully, completely panicking about what's happening. And eventually it seems like she kills him. And then that leads to, you know, one of the big gore moments of the whole movie. Yeah. When he passes out and wakes up and she is on top of him. And actually when she's stabbing him towards the end in the neck, she's also like licking his face and eyes and stuff like yeah. that. So so she's turned on at this point. And then he passes out. And when he wakes up, it, she tried to have sex with him while he was out. But his new, his new penis is not a good fit, we'll say. Yeah, the new flesh. Yeah, drawing it back to Cronenberg. Uh-huh. <laughs> there's more. There's always more. But yeah, that's there's a scene of just endless amounts of blood spraying around around girlfriend against kind of a white curtain in the background. Yeah, and it's interesting. Of course, in the black and white, it doesn't have obviously the same effect of disgust, maybe that we would see if it was in color. Mm-hmm. I don't know, that kind of makes it easier to stomach, I feel like. So as much as this movie could and does in some in some cases get into disgust, uh, get into that aspect of body horror and, and relating to the body in this way, there's also something mm-hmm. that the black and white uh, distance helps with to make that a beautiful moment, too. Right. It's not just it's not just disgusting. There's something interesting psychologically happening for me anyway <laughs> yeah and it, it it honestly makes the film more palatable than a lot of other extreme body horror films would be is there's a also a weird amount of restraint with the more you could say what, what could be an incredibly gory sequence in another movie mm-hmm. they do this part with a lot of implication you see girlfriend you see the blood spray then you see his rotating drill penis with flesh on it. At no point do you see like the wound or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And that could even be due to budget limitations for the film because, you know, it was not a high budget film or right. it's just the way it shot it. And because of like later Sukamoto films, he doesn't generally linger on that stuff. It's not like he's like, oh, look at this. This is fucked up shit right here. He doesn't linger on it at all throughout the film. Like you see, you see it and you understand it without having to do that. Mm-hmm. And in a way that, that, that sparks up your imagination more, which conjures a worse image than he could probably make with his budget on film. And that comes through in a lot of the other special effects sequences as well. Right. Uh, yeah. And just to take a moment for that, I think the special effects, the practical effects are really pretty wonderful throughout it. There's a lot of really cool, applications of metal things living under the skin growing out of the skin there's this kind of cancerous movement this is like metal tumors we see kind of moving throughout people's bodies throughout the film so it all looks really cool for something super low budget i would have to imagine this was not a very costly movie though probably costlier than some of the theater productions and the earlier short films um but mm-hmm. yeah, there's a lot of work that went in to making this work. So I don't know. I I always like that DIY mentality and looking at films like this because it's like, oh yeah, you actually can make a movie. You can do what you need to do as long as you have a dedicated group of thespians by your side. <laughs> <laughs> and a, a lot of the special effects are done with just like, I think I read that they would check junkyards for, you know, like, electronics that had been thrown out and they could pull them apart and pull components out of it and there was a lot of duct tape and all this like hardware that they would find you know just wherever for cheap and they just buy it because if you notice throughout the film as he gets more and more metal it's just like there's just shit attached to him the whole time like they just add more and more and more layers to him right and i feel like the the bespoke parts like the drill penis and the i call i guess rocket feet you will call them 
Yeah. Like those were, were probably planned out, but a lot of it seems like it was like, oh, this look, this will probably look cool. Let's do it. Let's just stick it on and see how it looks. It all works together really well. There's a cool sequence, like 48 or so minutes in, that's kind of a stop motion of this body disintegrating, like it's disintegrating into the metal. And I guess it's about more his transformation that I just love. I don't know. Yeah. It's a beautiful Are you moment. talking about the uh, sequence where girlfriend melts, essentially? Oh, no. I think it's right after that. It's it's um, oh. the salary man's kind of melting into his environment. Yeah. But yes, we should come back to, to girlfriend melting. So yeah, what happens? <laughs> what does a girlfriend melt? And what does that look like? Okay. So he gets a call on the phone after girlfriend's dead. Actually, there's also a really weird sequence where he puts her in a bathtub, like mm-hmm. full of blood, water, flower petals. And he has this, this tube in his mouth that he's like, trying to put something in her mouth to get her to live or not. He's giving her a taste of that sewage pipe. If From the other end, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But uh, he gets a phone call from the metal fetishist, and then everything in the house essentially starts to turn metal. And this culminates in girlfriend's corpse appearing behind him, mm-hmm. and she starts to melt. And it the way it looks is it looks like her body's being broken down into separate components like skin, hair, and fat and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And it actually, this sequence reminds me of uh, in the first Evil Dead movie when the deadite dies at the end and it melts. Oh, yeah. Like right like five minutes before the end of the movie. It looks similar to that to me. And this whole sequence actually kind of reminds me of Evil Dead. This is a sidebar. I'm sorry. No, it's but, great. Like, the way that, connecting to everything. The way the house is making sounds and tur- and like things are turning into metal, and the camera will like zoom into it or like skew slightly. This whole sequence is very reminiscent of Evil Dead in my head. Yeah, I try to connect it more to horror movies, right? Yeah, because this is one of those borderline like someone out there in the world might try to claim this isn't a horror movie. I disagree. Yeah, and we'll show you all the horror parallels. That is that could be a long conversation <laughs> about you know what's considered horror and what's not. Right, it's a separate uh, thing. You but... know it when, you know it when you see it. There's no rules for horror. Horror is its own thing, and mm-hmm. you know just be open about it. Yeah, what comes out of a girlfriend? But the metal fetishist with flowers in his hand for the mm-hmm. salary man, and once again we have those mixed desires popping up, and it's coming out completely as the metal fetishist bringing you know a gift to him Mm -hmm. and if you watch the film like paying attention to all the details it really hammers its points home and you could also make the the idea that you mentioned earlier how this is the very like uh, industrial or you know uh, technological advancements at the time it really plays into those ideas as well so you could you could talk about how it's about you know the changing of the guard when it comes to humanity and our relationship to technology mm-hmm. but the the sexual nature of a lot of the sequences is what draws me to make the other conclusion that is in fact about realization of queerness essentially yeah well and that disconnection or disaffection from kind of the general the general expectations of life right which kind of as yeah. a queer person you have to also go through right because yeah if you're seen as deviant from society hey that makes things really difficult to to connect with most people on so i think that's also part of the appeal like even if we don't read direct queerness into it it also overlaps with a lot of queer people's histories yeah and just like personal ways to have to relate to the world um i always love a good queer loneliness story and i think there's something a little bit in in of that in here right of that yes there is a figure uh, multiple figures of attraction for salary man but a lot of this is just his internal conflict being played out in an external way as we mentioned at the top but that kind of gets us into the culmination and i'm not not trying to rush it but i kind of want to spend some time with this like ending sequence once metal fetishist has been reborn into the to the real world so to speak yeah it gave me very naked lunch vibes uh yeah cronenberg again what were they working together i don't know uh we get to see some metal kitties which is really cute and (laughs) 
that this quest, this thing popped up to me and I wasn't sure how to take it. But like I said, there's very little dialogue. So what dialogue does mm. come is very either memorable or meaningful to me. And what the metal fetishist tells the salary man is that I have all this rust on my body because I put a rusted thing inside of me. Yeah. And so my growths are all rusty, but yours are yeah. all kind of like nice and clean because you got your infection from a stainless steel. Right. Yeah. And I just wasn't quite sure what that meant. It just fascinated me. So I really wanted to dig in. Is there queer reading there about the difference between these two people? Um, you, Okay. So I believe he also says that his, it was his first implant that was rusty. Like the mm-hmm. very first one he had. And he mentions it. And this happens after a sequence where you see essentially back into his past where he's attacked by an older man with a with a pipe mm-hmm. which you know it could be it could it could mean a couple things i guess you could say it could mean either that his first experience was we'll say a negative one and that that whole attack is metaphorical mm-hmm. you know for a sexual assault on himself basically or it like you mentioned earlier it could be related to a venereal disease of some kind where he's like oh yeah you know you don't have this but i do so you know you can't really do much with me basically and either one like he has an idea that this metal fetishist has an idea that he's tainted in some way shape or form Mm -hmm. and that's what comes through out of that line and that line of reasoning in the film right tainted but also joyful uh one other thing i like Mm -hmm. about it especially if we dive into the queer reading is like the queer anarchy of this all uh which kind of propels this ending there's still a lot of resistance on the salary man's part. Like uh, now that he's confronted very directly with the metal fetishist, he has to really realize mm-hmm. what's happening on his own. And I think this is about where we get the reveal that he and the girlfriend hit the metal fetishist uh, with their yeah. car and get that kind of handheld camcorder feel of them having sex by his body. Like we find out that that, moment of them having sex in the woods that we've seen a few times throughout the film is yeah. all coming together in this moment of like, Oh no, that's the metal fetishists dying body seeing this. So, you know, there's a cool twist in the movie. If you're looking for twists, <laughs> it's literally his perspective. So you can actually see it as him having sex with a girlfriend while staring at the dying uh, metal fetishist fetishist is the first time they actually see each other as well. Mm-hmm. Like, because when he hits him with the car, he hits him because he didn't see him because he wasn't paying attention. So the first time they actually see and make that connection with each other is then when they dump his body and they have sex next to him, basically. So you could tie that into everything else as well. Yeah. And yeah, this whole sequence that you're you're talking about, like it has the fight in the streets, basically, where the metal fetish mm-hmm. just seems to have some sort of like magnetic control over the salary man. Mm-hmm. And they're just zooming through the streets and he's, you know, like smashing him into things. But eventually, you know, he gets that memory of getting of that old, that older gentleman. And that's when he loses the upper hand and the power in the situation, basically. And they're both kind of still growing all these metal parts. So there's kind of, mm-hmm. you know, as things are continuing this fight, the salary man is kind of slowing down. He's... I don't know, growing or absorbing or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Many different things are happening with this metal. So that's kind of comes to a standstill, I guess, as he's kind of overwhelmed with metal mm-hmm. and the metal fetishist is having a, a memory or something that's preventing him from getting, getting further. But he does tell the metal fetishist does tell the salary man that your future is metal, right? That there's, mm-hmm. there's a very direct, like you are going in this direction. This is what's going to happen. So stop fighting it, basically. <laughs> right? Like, live your yeah. you know, destiny. Mm-hmm. And I think that becomes, yeah, this, this standstill or the kind of moment of I can't fight you anymore. The moment of exhaustion is a really interesting one for this movie. Yeah. Uh, something to point out for the sequence, too, is throughout the salary man is growing larger because it seems that he has no understanding or control over his you know the metal that attaches to him well 
Mm -hmm. The metal fetishist stays essentially human shaped for Mm -hmm. most of it because he has an awareness and a control over what he is and what he's doing. So you have the salary man who is new to all this and doesn't understand everything. So he's just attaching to everything. Whereas the metal fetishist can be more discerning. Right. Oh gosh. Attachment. Attachment styles. Look them up. (laughs) Are you an anxious attacher? A secure attacher? A metal attacher? (laughs) I don't know. But it is a really interesting part just because they do come to a, you know, a common ground at this moment. And there is that incorporation of the metal fetishist into the salary man, right? Yeah. As much as he has been resisting this moment, once it happens, he does absorb the metal fetishist fairly easily, I guess mm-hmm. I would say. They kind of join together and then there's kind of this sequence of them within kind of a metal environment, but they're mirroring each other's movements, right? There is another yeah. little like kind of dancey tango mm-hmm. thing happening. And and their hands are like physically connected by not metal, by flesh. And the, mm-hmm. the and in the sequence, the area they're in when they connect, it looks like I guess what would be inside of it. Like when you see the metal fetishes earlier controlling people's bodies and other things. Mm-hmm. When they're inside it, it it plays the same music from when the salary man hit the metal fetishes with the car. It's the same saxophone track mm-hmm. and th- where they're floating. And it almost looks like a, it's almost like a womb, like, like visual, like it feels like a, like a, like a rebirth basically. Yeah. And you could tie that back to the zit because right at the beginning of the film, the first thing you see from him is a zit which you could see as like a new form, a growing new form of attraction or a kind of second puberty that he's going through at Mm -hmm. that point. And so it eventually results in his rebirth through connection with the with the metal fetishist. Right. We have a little bit of a Benjamin Button situation. (laughs) An adult man's going through his kind of second puberty then walking back to being reborn through this metal womb. And... Mm. Then once he gets to the other side and he's kind of incorporated with the metal fetishist, but the metal fetishist is kind of more dominant in whatever goopy metal person structure they've made. (laughs) The salary man just says, I feel great. Yeah. Which I love because it shows he's put into this kind of submissive role after this incorporation. And it's great because that's what his anxiety was throughout the movie was being submissive. And the gender of the person that he's submissive to doesn't really matter. It was just like that fear was the thing. So I'm not trying to blur the lines of like kink (laughs) and queerness. Like Mm -hmm. you can be a queer person and kinky. You can be a straight person and kinky. Right. That's that's maybe a separate thing. But I think a lot of uh, the role, gender based roles and what you should be to a partner, it gets very uh, weird for queer people. Yeah. So I do really like that moment where he acknowledges like I like this and I can be fine and proud of <laughs> being clear about what like what I want. Yeah. And completely like silent other than that and doesn't really appear to have much thought as well. He's completely allowing the metal fetishist to take over which is something he had been fighting against because once again, like you alluded at with that dream sequence with girlfriend earlier, it was something mm-hmm. that gave him anxiety that he was worried about, but he chooses to embrace it in the end to be that person. Right. He maybe deep down wanted to be the whole time. Yeah. Didn't we all? They're also it's a happy a big, ending. Yeah. It's also a big, you know, cyberpunk tank. <laughs> yeah. It, it gets, I feel like this is the most kind of explicitly, queer thing or at least in terms of like direct like a Mm -hmm. line reading for what's happening on screen that the metal fetishist talking about him and the salary man says our love can destroy the whole fucking world yeah amazing and it should (laughs) Uh, in a sense in a metaphorical sense i could say that the ideas for the interpretation that i have of this film actually started from working back from that line at the Mm -hmm. end like i didn't fully have this idea about it until 
much later after watching it. So, you know, it's kind of like there's key moments where you can kind of see like the dialogue or certain mm-hmm. visual aspects and you can build from there because the more explicit things you can pull stuff out of the more subtle or, you know, I don't want to say incomprehensible, but we'll say obfuscated parts. Mm-hmm. And also something I noticed that I didn't fully notice before. I think the first time I noticed it was right before I wrote the Dread Central piece and I forgot to write it in there because I forget everything. But when they're driving through the city at the end of it and it shows the back of the metal fetishist, you know, he's mm-hmm. got the Uzi hanging up and stuff like that. The back of it looks like the top of a penis completely. It mm. looks like the head of a penis. Like how he's straight yeah. up. Like not even not even like oh it kind of no, it just does. It just looks like like it's very literal there. And I was just sitting there. I was like, how the hell did I not notice this all these years? It's super phallic. I also, just to, I guess, tie some iconography into some queerness, too. From the front, when we see Metal Fetishist holding up that gun and the way that his face is made up, I also thought of Divine in Pink Flamingos (laughs) towards the end of that, where (laughs) she's got her gun, the eyebrows, everything. It's not exactly (laughs) that style of makeup, but there's just a very... There's a lineage, I would say. And yeah. I don't know if anyone involved in this movie identifies as queer or not. And I don't really um, care. <laughs> no. It, it, if they don't. You made a queer day, movie, really... you have to live with it. Yeah. At the end of the day, it, it, you know, it doesn't matter, I suppose. And I think Shinya Tsukamoto is actually pretty tight-lipped about his actual personal life. Like, if you try mm-hmm. to look up information on it, it's almost non-existent, which is weird for a director who's still around and doing things. Yeah. So he's very private, I guess. And that works here because you can be like, ah, oh, it could be anything. Whatever. Right. Well, and it's d- even difficult in any film industry. Like, it's difficult to be an out queer person in the American yeah. film industry, let alone... Yeah the Japanese film industry. So uh, lots of things to go around, but yeah, when it gets, you know, repressed, it's going to come out some way. So mm-hmm. I'm glad that in this case, it came out as Tetsuo, which uh, I love. I'm glad I finally saw, you know, I'd seen bits and pieces. And like I said, confused mm-hmm. it for rubber, confused having seen it for the time I watched rubber's lover. It was like, yeah. Oh, I've probably seen enough of this to like have, a good overall reflection, but I'm glad that you wanted to talk about this movie. Uh, Cause I've always wanted to get really into, <laughs> into the weeds of body horror, the queerness that's inherent in this genre yeah. and really be able to qu- kick off our pride month with something that's so, I don't know, subversive and a, a different take on queer representation right that the movie itself is queer not just that it has queer people in it yeah like it has queer thematic underpinnings that Mm -hmm. seem like they're part and parcel and just piece of the film as a whole like i find there's always something really nice nice bad word for that uh really like fulfilling about watching a movie and digging these themes out where it doesn't explicitly Mm -hmm. tell you anything i think it it that might be why I've loved it so much for so long is because this film doesn't, you know, have an explicit message it's telling you. It just, like you mm-hmm. said, it says, here's the film, here's the vibe, enjoy the ride, make of it what you will, basically. Yeah. And it's a hell of a vibe. <laughs> it is a hell of a vibe. Thank you for tetsuing it up with me. Have you seen the sequels? <laughs> I kind of, yes. you know, followed up I started watching the sequel, but I was like, no, I actually need to focus on preparing for this one. <laughs> so I'm going to try to finish off at least the the direct sequel, uh, the one that came out a couple of years later, Tetsuo uh, Hammer, Body Hammer? Yep, Tetsuo Arm and Hammer, Body Hammer. <laughs> yeah, it, you, could, you could see it as like uh, the Evil Dead 2 to Tetsuo's Evil Dead 1. It's a, like a semi-remake, but there's a bunch of extra stuff added onto it. Okay. And it... it, it has its own feeling and its own thing to it. You also see what you brought up a lot, which is themes of dominance and submissiveness, but you'd mm-hmm. see, you see that in a lot of early Tsukamoto. You see it in this, you see it in Body Hammer, you see it in Tokyo Fist. Like there's a lot of things 
Tokyo Fist. Deal with, I like, would imagine I would see it yeah. in a movie called Tokyo Fist, right? <laughs> that is the goriest boxing movie you'll ever watch. But uh, <laughs> sounds exciting. Um, no, it it really is. There's like he, he's always toying with these ideas of what dominance, submissiveness, and masculinity are mm-hmm. in a lot of his early films, and he would he would get into more themes the later his uh work would go on with stuff like like a snake in june and what's another good example gemini which is one of the most gorgeous horror movies i've ever seen everybody should watch it so i'm gonna go ahead and suggest you watch it watch gemini it's great but (laughs) bring out gemini i'm also curious about his like most recent film i think killing which is kind of a subversion of the samurai film Mm -hmm. So I have to find that as well. So basically, uh, we just ran down all of Shinya Tsukamoto's <laughs> filmography for you. So check it out. It'll be worth your time. Oh, yeah. But speaking of things that are worth your time, where else can we find what you're working on, John, if people want to follow you on the Internet or, you know, what you're doing in, in the digital world? <laughs> Most of the things I'm working on, you can find out about through my Twitter, which is my main form of social media. I don't have much else other than that. And that is um, at Astroslop, one word. And that's the predominant place you can find it. I also have a a website I frequently forget to update that is astroslop.wordpress.com. And that is where I just collect links to the different articles I have so that it's easier to find for people or giving samples and stuff like that. But that one's almost never updated because I forget to do it. So check the Twitter. But in some ways, it's it can be helpful because then we can look at some older articles or things that might get buried in the the timeline to be like, oh, oh yeah, it's it's well organized at least from what I've seen. You have like the bylines <laughs> for each place mm-hmm. that you write for. So that's wonderful. We'll keep an eye out for that. Uh, keep your ears open for the Descent podcast. Go back and listen to their back catalog. You'll find a lot of stuff to watch. Like it's, it's a treasure trove, right? But you know what? Since it's Pride Month, let's keep it queer and keep it creepy. Click. Did you hang up? No, I just said click.